Welcome to the podcast of ideas. The recording you're about to hear is from a meeting of the Arts and Society Forum on the 24th of January 2023. The debate is called, What does 2023 hold for the arts? In the chair is Wendy Earle. So, uh, welcome to this Arts and Society Forum, the first of 2023. Uh, My name is Wendy Earle and um, I organise and chair these events. The Arts and Society Forum um, has been running for a good few years now and our main aim is to have an open um, discussion about the arts that might bring some uh, lucidity to the situation or enable us to sort of think about what is going on in the arts, what's changing and, you know, whether the developments are um, positive or not so positive and what we do about them. So um, the other thing I wanted to also say is the, um, the Arts and Society Forum is part of the Academy of Ideas. And the Academy of Ideas is an organisation that is very much committed to promoting freedom of expression and, and open public debate and has um, a major event every year at the end, or in October, I think this year it's the end of October, called the Battle of Ideas. And I would really recommend you keeping an eye out for that because it's really the event of the year Um, the festival of the year in terms of really open public debate around all kinds of issues and we'll be there uh, thinking about things right now what we're going to be talking about the main purpose of this discussion really is to look at how we can cultivate and support a spirit of freedom in the arts and I've got a really um, fantastic lineup of speakers who will address this question and start the discussion going. The essential format is that each of them will talk for a few minutes, maybe five or six minutes, and then I'll open it up for discussion from the floor. And that's an opportunity for you to bring in with your comments and questions, and then we'll come back to the panel to uh, address those questions and comments and respond. And uh, we'll do a few rounds of that and have a final summing up at the end, and then if there's anything left unsaid, we can go and say it in the pub afterwards. We'll go to the Spread Eagle down on Parkway at the end of this. So, the speakers are, first, going to speak is Alexander Adams. He, his book, um, Abolish the Arts Council, was really the kind of the inspiration for this session, and in it he, you know, really makes a case for um, the, whether the institution's such of the Arts Council are really serving the arts um, anymore. And he's a, written a lot of books. They're on the back there, at the back there. So if you'd like to buy them at the end, and he'd be happy to sign them, uh, please do. Um, and uh, so he's going to speak first and lay out, um, in a way, his case. He hasn't got a lot of time, but he'll lay out his case, uh, uh, sort of like, in a way, I, I guess, mainly against the Arts Council. It's a focus, yeah. Um, then um, we have Jack Hughes, and Jack Hughes is a uh, classically trained musician who, um, and, and a composer, and who, who uh, uh, set up, was in, was the lead singer for a band called Wang uh, Chung that was a new wave band in the 1980s and um, was very successful, um, particularly in the United States. And he's still composing and making albums. And um, I'm very excited that he's come here because he brings... Uh, a a musical focus to what might otherwise tend to be a bit of a sort of visual arts focused discussion and I want to cover the breadth of things and finally there's Dr Mo Lovett who is um, 
the National Coordinator for Debating Matters, for, uh, which is an, uh, a kind of competition for schools, and um, is the Programme Coordinator for the Academy of Ideas, and has a PhD in uh, community arts and the challenges um, that she faced while she was working, relating to challenges she faced while she was working in the community arts. Um, I hope I haven't completely <laughs> sort of like misrepresented you. So we'll start off now with Alexander and um, yeah, get going. Thank you very much. So this is just a, a very, very brief uh, speech. Uh, we are here to discuss what to expect in the arts in the UK in 2023. In many respects, it will be grim. Prizes and media attention will be allocated according to demographic characteristics or political utility. We will see museums offloading colonial artefacts as fast as possible. Television shows and films you love will be withdrawn from circulation. Exhibitions of respected art will be used by spiteful curators, turning them into show trials of great men. Charities will pervert the missions of museums. Publishers will fill bookshops with grievance memoirs and distorted histories, and they'll all be reviewed positively. Your culture will be traduced, your objections mocked or ignored, your efforts as makers, thinkers and lovers of the arts will be disdained. All in all, just the same as last year. But I bring you a message of hope, one of renewal. A group of dissenting artists and makers will emerge this year. The core will be formed tonight, right here. They will not be driven by revenge or malice. They will not subscribe to the values of the establishment. They will work as if the people who despise them and their ideas do not exist. They will treat the age that in which they live as one which will and must pass before an era of the values and honest achievements, ones that our forefathers would have recognised, are restored. They will play a part in restoring those values. The supremacy of aesthetics, striving towards beauty, dismissal of the post hoc apologia and rejection of the state's approval. Indeed, the state's approval will become a stain a badge of dishonour. I shan't propose a name for this movement. After all, the movements that counted most were named by those who opposed them. Previously, I've spoken about comprehending the world through action, not theory. I say we can only understand what this new movement of renewal will be by enacting it, by making, sharing, promoting, funding, and thereby coming to understand what we need by seeing what we feel compelled to make. We will, consciously or otherwise, produce what is needed, what we find to be absent in the arts today. We have a deficiency in our lives, something like a vitamin deficiency, which leaves us listless, enervated, aesthetically and intellectually malnourished. This is deliberately done in the cultural field, in the same way we are made weak and dependent on the state via medication, health advice, nudge policy and safetyism. This renewal movement will require starting from the beginning, building a parallel economy, new, new channels for art, fresh systems of patronage. That is the great challenge of the year ahead. This renewal of contemporary art must be done in tandem with protecting historical collections, public statues, distinguished architecture and place names. This will be done by defunding subversion projects 
abolishing the Arts Council <laughs> and removing the political uniparty which manages to keep in place the professional management class. Regarding that, the only solution in that field is to clear them out. What do we need to do? Clear them out. I commend this double mission of renewal and defence to you, lovers of the arts, here tonight. Thank you. I feel like I'm in the middle of an agitprop performance. Good. <laughs> so do I. Okay, um, so follow that if you can. <laughs> well, I, I guess when um, I was looking through the, uh, the blurb that Wendy sent out, if that's not too... Yeah, that's good. Detrimental word. Yeah. Um, one of the things that interested me was the uh, <clears throat> the remarks about. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to see. Yes, where it, where it says here. Yet it seems that progressive arts policies have largely failed. Re recent research shows that while few women and BAME people are now more likely to achieve a higher status professional roles than in the past, there are fewer people from working class backgrounds involved in the arts than in the 1970s. And uh, I suppose that struck me as uh, relevant because uh, my own uh, background is such that uh, I was listening to somebody on the radio recently saying that the years 1965 to 1975 were probably the golden age of social mobility in this country. And that was a time when I was really in my sort of uh, at school and then through into my university years. Uh, and I was aware that there was, well, was I aware? I, I think the arts were very powerful at that time. Um, uh, especially in music and especially in pop music and um, my career has been in in pop music basically uh, so when I was uh, young when I was seven years old I heard the Beatles for the first time and that was a big revelation to me I remember even though I was so young I still remember it clearly as a little two and a half minute section of my life that was in Technicolor and then back into grey for the for the rest of it and that sort of set my sort of aspirations as it were and I was very lucky to grow up uh, I think during a time when pop music was actually itself extremely aspirational. Uh, the musicians who were involved in it were uh, sort of good players. You know, being, being a good musician was very much part of what was expected, in a sense. And uh, even though I'd, I, mean, I, I grew up learning guitar and, and working in bands from when I was 12 years old, really, uh, but because I was a sort of reasonably bright kid, I suppose, and my parents wanted me to go to university, they hadn't been to university, uh, and, and I kind of, I guess I balked slightly at the idea of just leaving school and joining a rock band. That seemed a little suicidal. Uh, so I uh, went to Goldsmiths and did a degree in music, and I studied classical music because there was no other way to study the arts at that time. And that was a really good grounding for me, especially in my later career. Uh, and after the three years of Goldsmiths doing a degree, I did a year at the Royal College of Music studying composition in electronic music. And by that time, I was really interested in Stockhausen, Luciano Berrio, Pierre Boulez, those sorts of composers. But what I really realised as I came out of that process was that as a working class kid, which is what I was essentially, uh, I had no connections in that world. I didn't speak the same language as the people at the Royal College of Music. I made no friends there, really. Uh, and I found that it was, I, I found it made me feel lacking in confidence, really, to sort of continue in that world. So I, in a sense, went back to playing in rock bands. And, um, and from there, <clears throat> as a writer, I managed to sort of carve my own space 
in, in that world. I got a publishing deal and then a record deal and was signed to Geffen Records in, in Los Angeles and had number one records in America and did a movie soundtrack. So I had a lot of, sort of success during the 80s uh, pursuing that field. And I guess that's another thing that I'm interested in uh, this evening is that my experience of the arts has never been about government funding or about any kind of um, restriction. The only restriction that I ever had was about writing uh, hit records which uh, I managed to do once or twice, uh, but sort of most of the time actually failed miserably <laughs> to do that. You know. uh, but that in itself is, a, uh, uh, I, I suppose, a sort of, uh, can, can be a sort of crippling restriction. Uh, and just to cherry pick one more thing, you know, as I've gone through my career these days, uh, <clears throat> in the last, I suppose, 10 years, I've released probably about six or seven albums of more experimental music. Some of them are tilted more towards jazz, some towards sort of music and poetry, and more recently some sort of solo albums that are back in the sort of, broadly speaking, a sort of rock music sort of field, you know. And it's quite interesting to see how, uh, with Wang Chung, which was perceived as a very commercial product, if you like, by the British music press, we were universally hated and <laughs> slagged off, and uh, it was pretty unpleasant. Uh, working as I do now in more sort of experimental and broad-ranging musical fields, I found actually that the press coverage has been very encouraging, you know. So I, I feel that that's a, maybe a, a sort of message of hope in a sense, you know. Um, people are looking out, especially these days, for something that's sort of perhaps unique, something that hasn't been discovered before. Maybe that's always been the case in the arts, that the things that are really going to come up and thrive are the things that are somewhat unique to their time. Anyway, I've waffled. <laughs> Great, thank you very much. Yes, well, that gives a... Um, that gives a, another perspective on sure. it, and that, but raising, I suppose, the same kind of um, general problem of uh, problems around how, how the arts survive and move forward. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. the machine, isn't there? Yeah. And then there's the artist, and it's how you interact with that... Um, not necessarily subvert it, but how you get it to work for you rather than being used by it. Yeah. Okay, Mo. Uh, okay, um, thanks to you both for mm. your contributions. I'm going to try and riff off the contributions a little bit if I can, um, because um, if anybody hasn't read that yet, it's an excellent read. I really like it. And I thought you might go to town on wokeness in the arts uh, tonight, Alex. So uh, I was going to riff on that a little bit because I have to say I'm about 85% in agreement with you. Uh, and also, as you can probably tell from my accent, as a working class person who's worked in the arts, that's also very dear to me. But why do I think that we've got, uh, we've got a problem in the arts sector and, and why things are, as I agree with Alex, uh, looking a little bit um, uh, grim for the future? And I think... Um, there's, you're, you're partly right in terms of this kind of what you call in the book liberal, this liberalist management elite. Um, some people call them the professional middle um, managerial class, don't they? That, that kind of walkish set, the social cultural warriors that seem to have kind of come up from nowhere and, and, and captures our institutions. I think there's something very much in that idea, but I also want to throw out um, the idea that um, what we have right now in the country is, is an elite who doesn't believe in itself anymore. If um, anybody's familiar with Joseph Roth's The Radetzky March, the novel, um, where he charts the, um, the, the demise of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and how much that kind of impacted culturally, socially, politically uh, on that era, I, I sort of feel we're almost in that sort of situation now. And we're in the middle of a culture war. So even what we mean by the elite 
um, depends varies depending on who, who you talk to. But I suppose even if you're talking about the old kind of the old vanguard, the old conservative elite, and we see what's happened to the kind of conservative party as they're sort of slowly collapsing at the moment, or whether or not you're talking about this new kind of Blairite technocratic elite um, that um, that have taken over a lot of our institutions. I think we're in trouble because I think neither of them has confidence in themselves, and certainly if you don't have confidence in yourself, you can't have confidence in your culture. If you don't have um, confidence in humanity, how on earth can you invest in the humanities like literature and the arts and all the rest of it? So I think I think this is where we're at at the moment, and I think there's two cultural trends that, that um, permeate arts, um, arts policy circles that have led to the situation where we can't um, uh, argue for arts for art's sake. In fact, I, I very rarely hear artists argue for arts for art's sake. And if you look at the new um, Arts Council's 10-year strategy, um, I've written this down, they have, they've kind of replaced the word art for the word culture, and artists are to be known within the report as creative practitioners, not artists, creative practitioners. So, and it's called let's create. So, we're talking about creativity and culture. We very, we are, we are kind of devaluing almost the word art itself. Um, all of this is nicely semantically justified in the um, in the report itself. But as, as I say, it sort of gives you an, an indication of how our cultural elites um, value value art, I suppose. And the other thing, um, artistic merit or excellence is not referenced in this report. There's one reference, because I did a, a search on it, of the word excellence. Um, and um, it's an 80-page document. <coughs> and um, the only time excellence is mentioned is when it, um, it refers to excellence can be found as much in the village halls as it can be in the concert halls. That's it. So excellence is no longer valued. I mentioned it to a friend of mine who was an artist, sorry, a creative practitioner, and um, he, he, he was absolutely delighted. He said, it's so good that we finally got away from this horrible elitist language of excellence and artistic merit. And I said, but I like um, excellence and artistic merit in the arts. That's why I, you know, I've subscribed to that Matthew Arnold view that, you know, culture can, uh, you know, it, it's kind of how we understand perfection. It's about the best that can be thought and said in the world. And he looked a bit sheepish and said, well, so do I. But it's this whole drive for excellence in the arts, which is a problem, because actually we need to be, um, we need more people to be participating in the arts. So this is one of the trends that I wanted to talk about. I've got some thoughts on instrumentalism, but I think we've done that quite a lot, lot in these forums. So, um, and this is the idea of cultural democracy, which really permeates um, arts academia and um, cultural policy. And you can see it really infused throughout um, Nicholas Sorota's um, uh, policy document. The idea, and you can see it in this whole conversation about the English National Opera and how it needs to be geographically outside London. It needs to be somewhere up north, as if Opera North doesn't exist and hasn't been playing to audiences in the north for a long, long time. Um, and it's, it's this um, idea that um, you can't just have um, the democratisation of art. You can't just make art available to more people. Um, you know, you can't, you can't encourage more people to enjoy the arts, but actually you have to encourage more people to create art, and which is fine. I'm not against people creating art and creating culture, um, but that everyone is an artist. So you have projects like 64 million artists and everyday participation, which is about valuing 
um, knitting as much as it is valuing opera. And with this kind of cultural democracy idea, you get the idea that all forms of participation in anything creative at all is equal. And so what I think is happening within the arts sector myself is that um, this idea of elitism, which has this connotation of snobbery, which nobody really likes elitism and snobbery, has been, uh, it's sort of been um, confused with this idea that the arts itself is elite in that it is the best that we can produce as a society, as a people, as a person. And I think this... um, in, in a way, you're sort of right that this, this this is part of the kind of... It was really part of the um, community arts movement in the 1960s that kind of um, had this idea that that, um, that you shouldn't just value things like opera and ballet um, and classical music because that was just for the elites, um, which I think, is, as a working-class person, is absolute patronising nonsense, quite frankly. Um, and I think you'd find most working-class people would say, would say the same too. So um, I'll probably just stop there for, 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 for my, because I've probably gone on too much, but it's this idea that everyone's a winner, that everyone's an artist, that I think is really problematic in the latest kind of strategy report. We need virtuosity, we need skill, we need talent, and we need to support artists, not creative practitioners, to, to create art that we can all enjoy. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much for sort of pulling all of that together. Um, so this is a chance for people in the audience to come up with the questions and comments and points. Um, so I guess, yes, I'm seeing a few hands already. So I've got one there and then one at the back. So, yeah, do you want to start? Yeah. yeah. Uh, forgive me, I haven't read any of your work, but I used to work for the Arts Council and entirely agree you should abolish the Arts Council. Um, <laughs> um, um, exchange emails afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess... I am not you know, delighted with the phrase art for art's sake, um, and in some ways, in the sense of you um, positing saying what there needs to be alternative values to the existing arts establishment, but the only thing you seem to be countering is the arts establishment. So I was just interested in what values do you think artists should be engaging with, because art never has come just for art for art's sake, has it? It's engaged with, as Jack was saying, social mobility at a certain point in time, uh, a, a sense of common purpose. So um, it can't just be within its own framework. So I, I, I just um, wanted to explore that more. Mm, good question. Uh, somebody right at the back that had their hand up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just, I, my question was sort of directed at more. I thought, that was, I thought it was very good and very interesting. But the point that you made about... Um, um, snobbery, I thought was interesting. I'm not really bad at snobbery myself. I come from a working class family as well. But um, I agree that I think you need a focus on excellence and elitism and perfection in the arts. But the question I have, I suppose, is can you have that without having a class of people, a clique of people, a movement of people who know that they are doing better work than anyone else that are confident and that um, by virtue of that feel no pressure to kowtow to these democratic principles to knitting over orchestra as you say. So um, I I would say what is the the relationship between elitism in art and elitism amongst the class of artists? Are those things, can you separate those things or are they actually 
fundamentally you know, intertwined, in a sense? That's a great question. Um, yes. Probably an easy one, but we accept elitism in sport. So what do you think is the base, like the fundamental difference? Why do we accept it in one that's also, yep, good. There's a hand back there, yes? Yeah, thank you very much. I want to um, somehow draw attention to, I think, an uh, actually darker element which exists with respect to the current political organization of art, because I don't think it's simply a matter of people losing confidence in, or the elite losing confidence. I think actually what we have in terms of cultural management is something more like a cartel, actually. And the way that it's functioning is uh, a group of people are, in, in effect, taking, taking control over this sector and are using it to, to reward themselves. And this is actually the essential operation which is being performed. So to oppose that from only a critical perspective is actually not going to really work, because also they will actually suppress violently, in fact, alternatives to this hegemony that they have created for themselves. And we actually have seen this uh, on multiple occasions in the last year. And we see it, I think, in particular in a relationship between people going to art schools who are having this surplus production of artists, of intelligentsia to some degree. These groups are being mobilized uh, to function as in a way, the, the, how do I put this in a, in a gentle form? In a way, the enforcers of this kind of hegemonic line, actually. So, although I'm in profound sympathy with everything which is going on, I just want to somehow point that fact out, that it's not only going to be a matter of coming up with the superior alternative, but somehow actually also defending that from what will be. Yeah. Okay, uh, take one or two more questions. Is there any before? Yes, and then we'll come back. <coughs> I just wanted to focus on the word of relevance because I find when I look through these reports, I really have to just find as like relevance. And for art, art's sake, for me, it means kind of like an implicit relevance, something that you don't necessarily think of, but it kind of infiltrates your worldview. So I was wondering, like, <coughs> we can tackle this like obsession with very explicitly saying how everything you're doing is relevant. Yeah. Mm. Okay, anybody else before we go? Okay, so how do we do this? While Alex recovers, right? Yes, you say something and then... I was interested in your, your point about elitism in sport. You know, we're fine with that. And so why not elite... Or You didn't use the word elitism, you know, like excellence, let's mm. say, in sport. And, um, and I think about um, <clears throat> my experience of working in America uh, with these sort of professional musicians there, who I would say, you know, a lot of them, you know, in, even in sort of pop music circles, but certainly in the sort of more jazz world, you know, they're all trained at Berkeley or uh, Juilliard or whatever. The level of professionalism of those musicians, uh, excellence, if you like, is astounding. You know, and yet the music they produce is appalling. <laughs> you know, whereas in the UK, you've got <laughs> much more sort of uh, amateurish sort of levels of musicianship. Not everywhere. There's some great musicians, but in general. <coughs> you know, uh, 
and, and my experience, you know, being signed to an American record label and wondering why my records weren't successful in the UK was, I was told by an A&R guy, was because <clears throat> basically the UK is a great place for finding talent, you know, and then you sort of, uh, it establishes itself in the UK and then you take them to America and pump loads of money into it and ruin them, <laughs> like making them, you know, much more commercially successful, you know. Um, but nevertheless, the UK uh, in the sort of, certainly in the <coughs> 80s, but I think in the 60s and 70s, was this great fountain of great ideas and originality, uh, which the Americans didn't really have. They were copying the UK ideas. You know? And so I guess my point is that in the arts, uh, there's not an equal sign between excellence and great work. There's excellence equals complacency quite often. You know, and it's how you generate uh, the sort of engine that drives up the next sort of great original movements and thinkers. You know, and, and how you do that, I'm not too sure. But you've got to have a sort of thriving, maybe, oh, I don't know, thriving what? You know what I mean? But the, I guess the, the, the means of artistic production have got to be available to, to people as it was when I was growing up. You know, you could form a band pretty easily. You know? These days, perform, uh, forming a computer game production company, I imagine, is pretty difficult, you know, because that's where the technology cutting mm. edge is, you know. So that will be where the interesting art will be, you know. Yeah. But, uh, I th- yeah. I th- when you just, when you said excellence, um, they're excellent, so they're skilled, but why is their music so bad? Is it lack of creativity or yes. inspiration? There's a complacency about right. it, I think, you know. Okay. Um, you know, I think of a musician like Pat Massini, for example, you know yeah. I mean, who's universally regarded as an incredible guitarist, you know, but whose music is stultifyingly boring. Right. You know, because it's so kind of tonal and, and, and there's an attitude about it that's just kind of like, it, everything's so great, isn't it? You know, there, there's no fight and there's no sense of... Um, uh, Inspiration. Angst yeah. in yes. the works. Yeah. 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 Mo, do you want to... S- yeah, not that, I, not that I'm sure I'm going to come up with many answers. <laughs> yeah, I'm very good at the criticism, not so good at coming up with the solutions. I mean, I think there's, there's this... I don't want to be too economically determinist about it, but there is this, we were talking about earlier, this golden age within the arts. I think the Arts Council was, fun, was founded at a time where there was a kind of a, a golden age in the arts in a sense that... Um, it was it, it was the um, it was the uh, the kind of successor to the um, council of um, I forgot what it was called SEMA Music and Arts Council yes. that, yeah that was formed in the Second World War and really it had this kind of political purpose of bringing together a kind of national spirit to remember why we were British and what what we wanted to celebrate about Britain uh, during the, the Second World War it was on the back of that that the, uh, the Arts Council was um, was founded really but it was also at the time when the BBC was was kind of um, becoming, you know, with 1952, the coronation, people started to get television sets in their houses and there was lots of arts programming on. And, and there was a real kind of flourishing in arts right across the provinces of, of the United Kingdom as people really sort of um, began to enjoy the arts. But also we did have a sort of national culture at that time. We did have a, a, a kind of sense of who Britain was in the world and what our national culture was and what it, if we wanted to celebrate, whereas I'm not sure that we have that so much now. Um, in fact, I think, was there some idea that we might have a festival of Britain or a festival of Brexit? Uh, and, and the um, managerial elite put the, put the kibosh on that because they didn't like the idea of celebrating all that was great about um, 
Britain in that sense as well. So I think this we, <coughs> we live in a complicated age. We, an age we do live in an era where there is this culture war where we are fighting about what our cultural values are. And there, in some senses, this is why I like your your approach, Alex, because you were saying, "Come on, let's stand up for what values we want in the arts, what we want to create." And you're seeing the Arts Council as a barrier to that, and, and saying, "Let's abolish that." And um, which comes back to the gentleman's point about the, the 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 cartel. I mean, you talk about in your book there is this kind of sort of roundabout of people in top positions within arts and cultural and heritage and museum and libraries, <laughs> all, all all kind of kind of um, on a carousel, kind of in. Uh, out of the same jobs and I think that's so true and if you are an artist or even a lowly arts administrator like I was and you have something different to say about the arts you soon soon get booted out don't you get cancelled very 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 easily if you don't subscribe to this the, the kind of um the mindset of the arts sector so I think it is about putting freedom back into society it is about kind of arguing more that we want freedom to um, creatively express and removing some of the <coughs> barriers like um, like the Arts Council itself but it's really tricky because I think there's so many people who work in the arts sector now who are well, frightened to put their head up of the parapet and say that sort of thing because it would almost be like a heresy but also you know they've spent years and this isn't just this isn't just the fault of the social justice loving left. Um, you know, there was there was a time really when Margaret Thatcher kind of started saying, "You have to justify why you're spending so much money on the arts. If the public are going to pay for this, the arts needs to justify itself economically." Um, which is very difficult to do. So then Tony Blair came along, sorry, and, and said, now you have to justify it with social benefits, which is why we kind of got this emergence of the instrumentalization of the arts, that it could um, help with social cohesion, um, health and well-being, even if anybody remembers Mozart and music, the idea that it could help kids with cognitive <coughs> development. So I'll stop there now, but yeah. <laughs> yes, good points. Uh, okay, okay. So only two points to address uh, really quickly, although there's obviously a lot to say. Um, so the lady asked about the purposes of art. What should art be? Well, very good point. I would say that art uh, is primarily an aesthetic experience. And that is used to transmit um, your personal values, civic values, moral values, values of truth. That's what it has done historically. And the way that you do that is that it has to be fused with aesthetics, which is very tricky because... Often the aesthetics is retrospectively engineered from what a society held up as its highest and then it was sort of retrospectively understood. Well, we have to try and find a way of fusing the values that we want to transmit and, and finding that these are actually um, done through aesthetics and not merely separating aesthetics as something different, which is sort of, you know, the art for art's sake case. Um, uh, because very often it becomes a discussion of uh, theory, and I think that theory is, is probably what we need less of. A uh, really good point by Columba about, uh, can you have excellence without an elite? Obviously, you should be focusing on the very best. Um, I'm personally not opposed to an elite. I'm just opposed to this elite. Um, I think... <laughs> As, as we all know, you cannot have a society that functions without some sort of elite, whether or not they're using democracy as their shield or if they're being more direct about things, it doesn't matter. There is always going to be an elite core, an elite 
of managers, an elite of generals, an elite of um, whatever field. Um, and this is where I differ with Mo. Mo says that the, we have an elite that doesn't believe in itself. It does believe in itself. It definitely believes in itself. It believes in globalism. It is tied to globalism. It is tied to multiculturalism. It is tied to internationalism. Uh, and it does not believe in the high culture of the past. It does not believe in the art that came from the ancients, that came from Christianity, even to a degree some of the art that came from the Enlightenment. It is detached from all of that. So I believe that the elite that Mo is thinking of um, has detached itself from what we would call the elite of the past. I think there is, a, there is a, a gradual but a definite break from the values of the elites of the past. This elite that you're talking about, is it a managerial elite? Yes, it's, the, it's te- the, the technocratic artists. elite. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. Because it's interesting when you say... Uh, that the, as it were, each generation, as it were, formulates what was elite retrospectively. Yeah. You know, so quite often the artists are actually impoverished. <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, the cl- classic Im- image of an artist who's, you know, you know um, struggling and, and sort of laughed at during their li- li- lifetime. But their work then informs a generation of sort of imitators who are somewhat inferior usually, but who uh, are then, then sort of uh, create the culture from that in a sense, yeah. yeah. But I suppose the, the way art is created in society has evolved and changed. So, you know, back in the Renaissance, the, the art that we truly love from the Renaissance was created by an extreme elite, very prosperous patrons. Well, imagine you, they managed, the, but an artist like Titian was... You know, he was a working-class kid, wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> Who, but you know, was famous for the fact that the Pope bent down and picked up his paintbrush for him, or whether that, that was a sort of major social kind of uh, you know, thing yeah. that happened, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder about this word elite. What, who's the elite and who are the artists? You know, yes. And, uh, how but, it all fits together. And, yeah, and that, but there is definitely an artistic elite. You know, there are sort of like Damien Hirst and yes, these sort days, of like, you know, Banksy and, and so forth. So it's a sort of... Um, I mean, I, I suppose one... I, people should come in with comments and questions, more questions now. But um, I suppose one of the questions that sort of like is, you know, maybe worth pursuing a little bit if you uh, are interested is, is this tension around elitism and democracy in the arts? Because... Um, how does that really work? I mean, it's fairly clear how it might work in a social, more social setting. But in the arts, I wonder if there's a, there are means of accountability that one can sort of like, you know, in a way, create, create a freer space for, for artists to be held accountable. Is that it? What does that mean? You know, so I think it's, um, it's that idea of, I suppose, the relationship between the artists and the public is something that maybe we could explore a bit more. But yes, you had a question there, and then, uh, yeah, uh, JJ, yeah. And then um, it was, were you at the, no, JJ first and then somebody at the back, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's worth kind of mixing some of these uh, false oppositions up a bit um, because, I mean, I think that, you know, when we talk about the arts and uh, fail to acknowledge that most artistic activity doesn't happen within the remit around the state, um, that's just not... Yes, start with this whole opera and classical music or whatever. I think 
realize that actually uh, the arts or artistic activity, that production of art in, say, popular music, literature, television, film, so on, so on, so on, so on, um, uh, are full of elites. And just pick up the stone as I quite full of snobs. And rock music was full of elites in its heyday, full of elites of guitarists and, music and singers. For sure. Um, and they were entirely, you know, very tapped and, and you know, you can think of all the kinds of groups. People think of the, those uh, individuals and groupings as if they were commercial, just simply commercially successful. That's what they're part of group. But actually, creatively, they're very important uh, 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 groups of, uh, of artists. So I think the important thing is that to counterpose elitism against democracy is a little bit silly because it requires democracy, it requires the liberty to produce and to associate and to make and to think and to criticize art. Yeah. When I say art, I mean, say, you know, Sergeant Pepper. Yep. And then I mean Titian, <coughs> you as well, just in Titian. So the point is that it takes a democratic space, free space in society, to produce elites. The point is, though, that they are self producing elites according to criteria that they set for themselves. Right? And the tension in arts policy and the, the role of the state, uh, ever since the state got involved in the arts, is that it tends to produce self-replicating managers who quickly lose their relationship to artistic creativity and therefore repeat themselves. This is why you have academies and this is why you have salons that, uh, of the Fossil of right? You have situations in which artists say we haven't we have enough of the establishment that has been produced. Okay, so I think that's important to, to acknowledge this is a product of the democratic era, the tension between self-reproducing state culture and free culture in a democratic society. Right? Yeah. So I think those things are need to be accounted by so clearly. Uh, just to kind of bring up then the next point, which is the idea that we should restore eternal values, which I think is that excellent point or argument. I think that's okay as long as you have a creative and living argument about what those values consist of and why they should why they should endure. Right? Yeah. That's the difference between restorative conservatism and a creative uh, engagement with the past and the values that we need today. And that requires a free culture of criticism. It requires one in which we can talk about what's good and bad. And I do think the elites have given up on themselves. I think that's why they do hide in globalism, and they hide in internationalism, and they hide in democracy. It's not because they are believers. They don't know what to believe in, and these are substitutes. Right? So I think that kind of situation where we can think about why art uh, matters to me, and not to the bureaucracy, and who else it might matter to. So lots and lots of exciting constituencies in art galleries and uh, art colleges and outside art colleges and music colleges and you know and so on and so on. There's so much activity that's about that young people, old people uh, do is saying this is good, this is bad. I like this, I don't like that. Right? That is that is the act of artistic commentary and criticism which leads to its own self-development. I think that's the kind of thing we need to think about much more positively. Uh, we do have to think about uh, values. We don't have to necessarily double down on the idea that values have been uh, uh, traduced and need to be simply returned to and try and question them. Okay. Anyone else? Um, there's somebody here and then behind. Yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, I'd just like to um, ask about uh, a more practical issue is having a hostile elite, really, if you want to call it that, or, or, or a, um, a poor elite we have, where 
Um, I noticed in particularly in, in literature, but I know in the visual arts this is an issue too, where uh, younger um, artists are struggling to get their work out there um, because of the hostility of the traditional uh, presses or galleries to hosting anything that doesn't immediately comply with their own criteria. Um, there's a very famous example of a, of a major American publisher who uh, explicitly requested work only from members of ethnic minorities, etc. Things like that, where you know, it's it's not even somebody selecting for excellence. Somebody selecting based on purely arbitrary criteria and things like that. But the tr and the, the trouble people are finding is that well, you're stuck under that ceiling, and there are other ways around it, like self publishing. But a lot of the time, that isn't really a, a practical option, um, and work that a long time ago would have been able to find um, an outlet via, via a press or, or via some other means isn't, isn't out there now. So what I want to ask the panel is basically, well, um, how, do we, how do we in the meantime get around this complacent delete? How do we get out from under something that, that is um, actively silencing uh, work based on purely subject, purely arbitrary criteria? Mm -hmm. um. There was a guy there with a hat on, and then, yeah. Um, you, you spoke earlier about the democratisation of art, and um, one art form that has been democratised more than perhaps any other is photography. I mean, everyone has a fantastic camera on their phone now that can take pictures that are absolutely mind-blowing. And I feel that because of that democratisation, photography has lost a lot of its authenticity. Um, the idea of photo being... Uh, one, a physical thing, and two, a very uh, singular object is completely gone when you can take a thousand photos in ten minutes and not forget all of them. Uh, so I guess my question would be, how does how does photography regain the authenticity that is lost through that democratization? Um, is it a suit of uh, the technical methods of photography that are perhaps a, a move to uh, photographic film, or is there, is there something deeper? Mm -hmm. You had a question, didn't you? Maybe. Yeah. So I, I mean, agree with Alex. I think that the elite haven't given up on themselves in the sense that they're self-protecting, you know, and, and um, but they have given up a thing that they used to have, which is a sense of, bit of, of having a universal element within themselves. I mean, you know, so, so I guess the elite did used to have. Um, you know, we're elite and we're the best and fair enough, you know, we've got the leisure and we've got the ability to paint and play music and create institutions like museums and collect um, you know, the Elke marbles or, or whatever. So, so they were, you know, the elite and patrician, but they also had a universal element in them. Um, and now I think they have, you know, obviously they still think they should rule the world, um, but the way they're doing that is in a really anti, you know, in a hatred of the people, no universality in that, in an absolute hatred of the people. You know, it feels very much them versus us now, in a different way. These institutions now no longer feel part of us and part of public society and civic society. You know, you're going to exhibitions and there's these just, you know, the most beautiful paintings are almost traduced by the horrible writing on the wall or the context. You have to see them in, and you think, well, this, this should be ours, and somehow you're making it not ours now. And, 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 and I, so I think that's 
maybe the chair, you know, it's almost like they're fighting against us and they're making all those institutions and all those wonderful things be against us as well. It's almost as if they hate the art and they hate us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's a guy there and then at the back, yeah. Yeah, I just want to make a follow-up comment with respect in particular to the term elite, which it seems to me is doing actually a lot of work here. And yeah. It's not a very precise term. And I think actually part of the problem is a difficulty in identifying you know, any elitism within this structure, even in leadership. And so I would therefore propose replacing it maybe with the term regime. I think it's a regime. I think it's, it's, a, it's a bureaucracy which is structured in a particular way. I'm thinking also of the classical sense of this term, so I don't necessarily, let's say, lead us down to an um, overly polemical path, but in terms of how social matter, let's say, is structured by these kinds of bureaucratic organizations, certain kinds of people get promoted. Certain kinds of psychologies are very uh, able to navigate these kinds of structures. It's these kinds of psychologies, these kinds of mentalities, which are self-replicating. And actually, there's no one that you can really point to who you can say, okay, this is somebody who's actually imposing their will on the system. The whole system instead is somehow choking everyone within it in a certain way from, from the inside. Okay, back. Yeah. I, I think that we should separate the lead from elitism. And I think that uh, is the, when the elite is elite, that is uh, that we are in trouble because uh, you know when it's elitist, it is what uh, in the front uh, it has been said. That is to say that they determine uh, who um, you know get what and how we should be um, instructed to act. Now um, instead, the elite that uh, for some reason recognize that. Uh, it is a position of, uh, uh, you know, excellence, and uh, it is in a position of excellence, and is in in a position of opening up as, uh, you know, the beautiful um, and fantastic history of, uh, of the English heritage. I, I call it heritage, but if you look, for example, how the libraries and museums were open all together to really open up and, uh, you know, open up culture and beauty. And there was a, a, a very much the aesthetic element was there. This beauty was important. It was something that uh, it, um, what is noble, um, make us noble, more noble. And, you know, and aesthetic and beauty and imagination are really, really important for, for us to learn how to judge and uh, to learn how to really um, think uh, what is right and wrong, you know, in society and for us. So I think that really is when the elite is elitist, that is the problem. And nowadays it is. It is very, very elitist. Yeah, good point. Um, I'll take a couple more and then... Um... <coughs> There's three more, and then we'll come back to, and then we'll go another round. Um, um, just to go on from the lady's, lady's point there, um, it's something that I think about quite often is this idea, this sort of overshadowing uh, concept of, um, and it's a religion now really, is uh, equality. 
and the democratization of art, the democratization of aesthetics, um, and being able to pin everything down, this idea of the tall poppy syndrome. Um, nothing can be aesthetically strong, as the lady was talking about, talking about aesthetics. How could you have aesthetic strength? Aesthetic strength, or to be able to achieve aesthetic strength, is an elitist thing in its very... Strength implies weakness. Sure, absolutely. And so it is hierarchical. And what I find interesting is, well, at least the question that, I, that often comes to my mind as a sculptor in the fine art world is, how can you have uh, true quality under the religion of equality? And this is something that is time and time again uh, coming into my mind as I look at the fine art world today, as I um, go to many different exhibitions, I'm involved in the fine art world as an outsider now. But I, I look at all this and I think, it's a spiritual thing, but it's a religion that is ultimately overshadowing all of this. And I just, I, I suppose the thing is, is how do we get through that idea? And my feeling is that you must step aside from all of this. It's something that is pinning everything down under it. I don't believe that there can truly be quality, or as you would say, elitism, or an elite, under the religion of equality. And so I would say, how do we move on from that? How do we push forward from that? We, we're sort of caught in the paradigm. We don't want to play their game. But we want to step outside of it and propel another way. I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking along with what the lady was saying. Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting. OK, so there's somebody there, then somebody here. Yep, you, Vicky. No, oh, no, hang on, hang on. Oh, sorry. I'm going to take two more people up. And then I'll come back to you afterwards, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, was just, I, I think sometimes this discussion is verging on quite conspiratorial, you know, a, a discussion about the elite or um, regimes or whatever you want to say. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that um, the world we live in at the moment is that conscious where you could talk about a self-consciousness of any particular group or a any particular sort of strategy, I think that some some of some of the kind of um, the direction that the arts is going is quite um, is quite complex and, and inbuilt a particular way of thinking, rather than it being that kind of um, you know, a, a conscious political strategy by any particular group, which is in some ways what makes it so difficult to to deal with. Um, but I just wanted to, I mean, I, I sort of I agree with a, a lot of what people are saying about the importance of judgment in, in art. And, you know, I think it, you know, producing art or writing about it or curating it is a constant process of, of judgment and, and should be. Um, but I also think that um, there's a kind of dogmatism within the arts at the moment that, um, you know, that means that we could actually do with a bit more freedom and, and a bit more kind of liberalism in a way about what art can be and what it could be and the range of ideas that might be possible because I think that the dogmatism is to say that art is really about social change and that art, you know, that art um, is good for you or art is radical and I, th I think that this is why this is why that people um, on the left that might formerly, uh, or you know, 20, 30 years ago, might have gone into politics or become activists, now see the arts as the kind of locus of 
yeah. of change. Very true. Um, and they they see artists as sort of inherently radical, or inherent artists being inherently left wing and progressive. Um, and I just wonder how how we got to this point where artists are seen as some kind of inherent, in, inherently radical or progressive uh, class of of people, and where you know the arts are seen as something a unique forum where you can make social change. And, and, and I think the, the fact that that seems to be the main um, task that's given to the arts now. Mm. Is but that's always been its task. forbidden to pass judgment and say this is better than that um, because all of the conversations I've had that haven't gone very well about that type of thing because you have to pass judgment in a framework and ultimately we live in the UK and you're passing judgment in a British framework and some tell you that you are imposing your colonialist values upon you know, that's sort of where it always seems to end up, that you're imposing white supremacy and you've got this sort of whiteness problem. And it seems tragic, as an outsider to this country, it seems tragic that you can't celebrate your own culture without being accused of, of white supremacy. And I think a lot of institutions fear that accusation, and so they... Um, and, and so they kind of kowtow to, the, to those who are on the verge of accusing them of it so that they, they can kind of preempt that, mm. that accusation. I don't know if I'm reading too much into things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll take the, that at the back and then we'll get you. And I want to say something actually, and then we'll get. I've mean, got a little tired of the word now as well, but talking about elitism, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I personally disagree with the point the lady made. I think that it's an oxymoron to you have an elite without elitism, I think. I, I don't think that's possible. And I think you're always going to have, in any society, a class of people, you can call it what you want, who decide what is good art, right, in the case of the art. You're always going to have this, right? You're always going to have a class of people who impose their values. All that matters, really, at the end of the day, is what values are being imposed. And right now, we're in quite a bizarre situation where you have an elite who um, occupy the highest positions in society and yet see themselves as the guardians of the oppressed or the working class or the minorities, etc. And that means that, as my friend Ben says, these people who um, view themselves as democratic will use their power, their, elite, their elitism, right, that form of democratic elitism, where they view it as their job to essentially cut down these tall poppies. Right? Mm. There is an inherent 
hostility towards tradition, towards um, old works of art, the classic, as Mr. Adams says. Um, and this is the elitism of the day. It's a, so elitism that is hostile to excellent work, to aristocratic work, as you want to call it. Um, and so I think that the only way to get out of that is to have an elite that is, um, or, or you know, a group of people, a, a vanguard movement who are um, confident in what they are doing, respectful of the past, who don't want to make everything base. I think it's a matter of what values are going to be imposed. Um, and I agree that, um, as the lady said, you, know, you, you need, um, right now we're in this situation where we are under the heel of this thing. And so I would say from a strategic point of view, um, moving towards a more liberal or a more um, free uh, exchange of ideas is going to be good for us because it will allow us to get our ideas out there, it will allow us to display our work and not be crushed legally, you're not going to have Antifa turning up at your exhibit, etc. Um, and so I, I really think that, I personally think it might sound mean, but I think the people who we are dealing with hate us, hate what we're doing, and they hate everything that our ancestors have done. Us, British people, our culture, our history. They openly say that they hate this thing. They go in and they throw, they throw pain or blood over a Rembrandt, you know, I mean, they have, they have no respect. Um, I think that we, we have to do things as, in a sense, us and them, otherwise we're going to continue to get, we're going to continue to lose. Um, so that would be, that would be my point. Sorry, I'm getting It's interesting, yeah, no, interesting, I mean, useful points. I mean, I, ju just on the question about how how strong is the elite that, you know, we sort of, are, I suppose, are referring to the people who, um, you know, the managerial uh, classes, in terms of their ideas, I think one of the problems they do face, I mean, the point that somebody made earlier and, and um, somebody else disagreed with, I don't think they have, their ideas are really strong. I think they're, they're very destructive on the whole, and mm -hmm. they, um, they're, they're anti, so I think that, in a way, Kind of. I mean, I'm I'm of the left um, myself, but I consider myself to be progressive. But I do think a real problem has um, arisen where, you know, the managerial classes have taken on a lot of the critique that the left has of 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 tradition in the past, and are using it against society, if you like, against against the public and against people in, in a certain way. But I don't think they've got a, a, a clear set of ideas. And in a, in a way, at some level, they aren't, I think, as somebody said, they're not that self-conscious. You know, they don't have a strong sense of who they are, which is one of the reasons why you could just... There's this constant sense of collapse going on. I mean, you know, the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, all of these various leaders, they don't have a really strong sense of themselves and what their interests are. And I think one of the things that, you know, we are... Historically, we have, as our... You know, we kind of look back on is the way in the past, you know, the, through the slow growth of, of the kind of, you know, the various classes over history, art was really emerged in this process of, you know, the society getting wealthier and beauty being something that could be created um, and valued and became to express humanity, human beings. You know, think about the Enlightenment. Human beings were, in a way, capable of creating incredible levels of beauty incredible levels of insight about the world. We're capable of doing incredible things. And I think that has kind of been destroyed over the course of the 20th century by a collapse of, 
um, if you like, the old elites that had a clear sense that that was important, who lost confidence in that, lost confidence in humanity and human capacity. And so what we're having to deal with is, is that sense of collapse and what you know, we might feel, as somebody said, under the heel of these sort of new managerial elites. But to some extent, it is a sort of sense of what do we push? How do we create something, build something that is more, um, you know, that can re-inspire that sense of, 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 love, of love of humanity, if you like? How do we, we, we bring that back, I think, is, is, is something we need to look at. Um, and I, don't, I, feel, I do feel like we've got to be careful about kind of just grabbing at history and trying to pull it into the present, we actually do need to think quite hard about what it means to say something is beautiful today or to say something is true. How do we know? And, it's, and I think that is a process that requires people talking to each other and a, 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 the development of a real public arena where that kind of thing can happen and not be suppressed. Um, but it's, I don't, I kind of, I guess I, what I'm trying to do is push it back against this idea that you push another elite forward or another elite can, imp can actually automatically impose a new set of ideas. I think that is part of the ongoing struggle that we have to deal with. And in order to do that, we have to think positively, or positive might be the wrong word, but we have to think about what it is that we are arguing for. You know, if we want to argue for truth and beauty, which I am inclined to want to argue for, but what does that really mean? And it needs, we need to tease that out a little bit more actively than maybe we, we often do. Um, but anyway, um, sorry, I usurped my position there a bit. Um, so who'd like to come in now? I'll, I'll come in very briefly okay. with a couple of points. <clears throat> I would say to JJ, uh, good points about um, a re return to traditionalism being can be vacant, and I would say that that's Im important. The, the perennialism, the argument is that you have a truth to the vitalism, and that is something different from an em empty simulacra of traditionalism. That if, as long as you're relating what you're doing to an essential quality which um, continues over time that you can make new forms from this and you can do this in new art forms and new, um, in new areas and it can even be radical, it can be... Um, so I would say that um, an artist like um, Edward Munch or a writer like Knut Hampson are essential vitalists because they're looking at essential truths that persist no matter what but they are talking about them in new, urgent ways. They're relating them to daily lives and they are, um, they are remaking this in a modernist form. Um, I'd also say maybe not to equate liberty with democracy automatically. There are plenty of democracies where you do not have that much liberty and there are plenty of places where you have liberty which are not technically democracies. Um, and a lot of art was made in those places that were not technically democracies. Um, and some of, us, some of us might like that sort of art and stability without um, the appurtenances of democracy. I, I, you have to weigh that up for yourself. Um, uh, and I'd also say that, um, um, yes, the, the, the liberalism that um, Columbo was saying, if you have a liberalism in speech, what happens is that you can speak, and if you have a sort of, um, a sort of an essentialist, a vitalist outlook, um, it, be it reactionary, be it traditional, or so forth, your ideas might win out 
if you are able to speak out openly and present them and present the force of this art, which excites people and engages people and people recognise essential truths in that. And that is, of course, one of the absolute reasons why you are not permitted to do that at the moment. So... Mm -hmm. you want to? Yeah, I was uh, taken by the guy uh, who was talking about photography and um, <clears throat> this idea that now you know, everybody's got a camera on their phone and you know, photography is basically it's very hard to sort of get back to a point where you can look at a photograph and define it as a, you know, this is museum photography and this isn't, and, and so on. And, and I sympathise with that because in music it's exactly the same. You know, I've got a laptop at home that's got more gear in it, studio recording-wise, than Abbey Road had in it in 1980, you know what I mean? By far, you know. So there is this in technology. I think we're not thinking perhaps, uh, you know, that art is also related to technology. Uh, it always is, you know, whether it's the invention of, um, you know, colour in Renaissance painting, you know, or whether it's the grand piano or <coughs> printing or whatever, you know. And uh, I, I think, you know, when I speak to my sort of uh, musician friends locally, uh, one of them in particular is very enthusiastic about the way the arts are moving these days because he sees that fact that now everybody can make a record, everybody can take a photograph as incredibly empowering, you know. And he's kind of not too bothered about whether it's any good or not. It's the act of doing it that he, that he totally values. So I think that's something important. And I think technology facilitates that. And I think technology is one of the things that's racing everything uh, out of the the control of elites in a way and, in, and that's quite powerful I think yeah. and, uh, and I do get slightly concerned about this constant talking about elites you know mm -hmm. I mean? and how these ideas were really sort of discredited after the Second World War you know and um, <clears throat> you know artists you know the sort of avant-garde musicians in particular you know they you know, Pierre, Pierre Boulez was famous for saying you want, to, you want to change opera blow up the opera houses you know? <laughs> and uh, you know there is a sense in which there's got to be a sort of renewal and I think that was coming up in a lot of what you were saying is sort of without mm. saying too pretentious but a sort of Hegelian dialectic I mean where you you know one kind of art rises up and becomes dominant or one elite rises up and becomes dominant and then becomes sort of flaccid and complacent and it gets toppled by the next thing that comes up you know I mean I'm not sure that we're really experiencing these sort of powerful replacements as you did in the earlier part of the 20th century yeah. with when you talk about Edvard Munch, you know, obviously he was a revolutionary, again, a, a painter who was, you know, struggled in his own lifetime, but is now retrospectively regarded as incredibly important. You know, I don't know who you would look at these days retrospectively and think they're important. Maybe it's more like pop music. Yeah, or <laughs> the know. film industry. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. Where yeah, it's, sort of, it's, kind of move, it's just yeah. sort of moving on, you know. Mm. And, uh, and that was something else I was thinking, you know, one of the things that put me in... That I went into pop music was because you could do what you liked, basically. And I got when I was at the Royal College of Music, you sort of couldn't actually. There was even then a sort of an agenda that was being set, a kind of music that you had to write if you were going to get your works performed. You know, and I got in pop music. You know, I could be fairly kind of uh, recondite with the lyrics. I could be sort of reference a bit of Stravinsky here and a bit of whatever there, and <laughs> nobody understood what I was doing really. But uh, but I, I could amuse myself in in that realm, you know. And I think about, you know, uh, when you watch a documentary, say, about the 60s, you know, about the Vietnam or whatever, the music that gets played isn't Benjamin Britten or Stockhausen or the great art music that was being written at the time. It's Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and mm -hmm. stuff, you know. So there is a sort of tension, I think, in sort of popular art and 
elitist art and so mm. on. Uh, and I think our, we're experiencing that in a very sort of powerful way, actually, because of technology racing things to, a, to God knows where. You know. mm. but, yeah. Well, funny enough, I was going to pick up on that as well, actually, because I think, um, you know, art isn't just about preserving the best that's been thought and said. It's also about innovation and dynamism and, and technology. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, I understand, um, you know, people who love photography and they're concerned about the fact that anybody can you know, live in this insta-everything uh, mm-hmm. age. But also, it's an opportunity for disruption and it's an opportunity for kind of something new and revolutionary to emerge as well. Um, and like you say, technology does that. We've had some really good disruptors. I mean, the internet is a massive disruptor in terms of arts and culture, but in terms of creativity. Um, uh, Also, I was thinking the fact that we are in a culture war is a bit of a disruptor in a sense. There's an opportunity there that we are actually fighting over what our culture is and what our values are. Brexit and Trump, whether you loved them or loved them, they were disruptors and perhaps they've caused a kind of elite backlash and that's uh, possibly what what, what we're, we're witnessing right now. Um, but um, I think in terms of where I see the, the, the kind of hope for the future, I think really is in um, the, the people who've talked about judgment and the people who've talked about a free culture of criticism, because um, for me, what's in, in order to be able to be free to make aesthetic judgments, you also need to be free to make moral judgments. And um, we're really, really concerned about how we make moral judgments and uh, uh, publicly from enforced pronouns to the way we behave on social media to the way that we might get cancelled for voting the wrong way or saying the wrong thing. Um, I think that's where the battle line lies. If we're going to be free to create better art, we, we need to be free to make our own uh, kind of uh, aesthetic judgments and our own um, uh, 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 moral judgments as well. And I think it's fighting some of these regressive trends like cancel culture and an enforced way of thinking and being in the world that is, is where the battle lines um, will we are drawn and where we'll create the gap for this innovation and, and exciting uh, art of the future to come. Okay, good. So we've got about another time for another round of points and questions if... Anybody wants to raise anything? Um, yes, there's somebody there. Anybody else? Anybody who hasn't spoken yet and who's sort of like thinking about speaking and not quite sure whether they've got anything to say? I'm sure you all have. Um, again, I don't want to harp on about elites. Um, <laughs> but, but I think what's an important point about the discussion about elites is to put it in some kind of historical context because not all elites are the same. And I think the point about that is that history has developed and the history of humanity has gone through all kinds of different uh, evolutions and developments and we now arrive here and here is an elite that if we are looking at it carefully believes in nothing except equality that's a weird contradiction an elite that believes in equality one of the bizarre paradoxes of the elite that believes in nothing except imposing equality is that imposing equality is a very uh, authoritarian mm-hmm. way to think, to believe in equality, right? So this is a very kind of uh, contemporary aspect of our elite, is that they've uh, given up on their, their moral right to govern because uh, they were opposed by mostly working people around the world, uh, the better part of the 19th and 20th century. Um, but they've internalized a lot of that defeat and now want to be liked. And if they can't be liked, they'll force it. Uh, so you have an elite that wants uh, to insist that 
everybody should believe in equality. Right? And the problem with that is that it produces a culture which is a sort of moral swindle. Because it's uh, telling us that, uh, the elite is constantly telling us that uh, we need to believe what they believe, which of course is virtuous and true. And the problem with that is it produces all kinds of weird, perverted paradoxes about how we should think about difference, inequality, uh, and our relationship to the elite. I mean, after all, uh, even though it's true that most of the great modernist art was produced uh, in countries which are not democratic, it happened in a period when the greatest battle that was being fought by ordinary people was for suffrage. Right? So it is not, it is not uh, acceptable to, to suggest that there is some kind of uh, a pure kind of non-democratic form uh, in which art could be produced, right? Art, the culture of the 20th century, the 19th and 20th century, has an intimate relationship in its dynamism and its creativity to the dynamism and creativity of society in general. That would, I mean, I'm not saying as a kind of directly, I'm saying they are related. What's really interesting about current moment is how dead and inert it is. Mm. How much the elite can only do one thing, just to keep things Taking over exactly the same as it is, stopping anything from changing. Right? That is the imposition of equality. Right? It is a managed form of equality which we should reject, not because we don't believe in equality, but because uh, we cannot tolerate a paradox of a society which is entirely hierarchical, and in fact becoming ever more so uh, in an ideology which insists on being good, being kind, and believing in being nice to each other. Which is, you know, that's, that's the kind of trouble that we need to, to confront. And it means reclaiming the space in which we can say, no, this is good, this is bad, and you're wrong. So yeah. at, at every level, socially, politically, culturally, and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> any, any other points that people want to raise? A, a, a lot of people here practicing artists. Is that. I, can you put up your hands if you're a practicing well, artist? <laughs> yes, yeah, a few. Right, okay. You feel like a bit palsy if somebody comes up to you at a party and says, what do you do? I mean, there's never nothing answer. more palsy than to say, I'm an artist. I would never say that. <laughs> I just say, I was an educator, I'm a trier. <laughs> to, to say, I'm a, but actually, it is, actually, it does describe what I do. But, you know, I want to say that as well. <laughs> okay, right. Um, yes, anybody else? Got somebody who's spoken before here? Okay, go ahead. I just wanted to ask the question again. Yeah. Um, uh, in, on, a, on a practical level, how do young artists without institutional power get past the extremely arbitrary barriers? Are you, are you talking about publishing and... Publishers and visual oh, yeah. arts and galleries yeah. and things like that. How do, you, how, do, we, do we go around, do we somehow create our own or... So we find a way to force through, or you know, a lot of people say you should self-publish, but as I said, it's like that can work, but often it's just it's it's like somebody it's like telling somebody to make their own Facebook, you know. Yeah, the the way you're talking about the 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 hostile elites operating through commercial gatekeepers, yeah, basically. Um, yeah. preventing artists from uh, writers from emerging. Yeah. yeah, it's basically how how do we. To, to use a crew term, how do we move the elite off the task? It's in the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, can I? Well, just yeah. a second, let me see if there are any final points, and then I'll get speakers to come back. Uh, I do want to pick up on JJ's point with respect to equality, he claims that the elite believe in equality. I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, there are two different ways that you can look at it. There's a form of equality which exists with respect to tyranny, 
because all are equal before the tyrant. But it seems to me that the equality is one of these words which is used, and it doesn't really mean very much except as a kind of weapon deployed against enemies somehow. Like I don't see really any relationship to equality in anything that, for, for better or worse, but in anything that's being done politically by, by, by the regime, as I would like to And um, I think that actually, in general, we have to just get rid of the idea that we're dealing with anybody that has any kind of interest in any ideas whatsoever. I don't think they have any interest in any ideas. They, have any they are interested only in maintaining and controlling the power that they have and expanding that power. And everything that they do and everything that they say is, is devoted towards this objective. And that's all there is to it, actually. I think that's all there is to it. Okay. So there's a hand... There's a hand back there, and then I think we'll probably bring the speakers, the panel, back for the final remarks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to ask, I, I've heard the words beauty and truth uh, used a few times, not many times. And I was wondering if uh, it was important that, or if you thought it was important that we, were, we had a clearer idea of what those two things are. And if it was important that we were unified on the subject. Um, and first that would involve probably getting clarity on it and then coming together and figuring that out. I mean, I, I'm involved in a lot of conversations on this subject um, with some people. And I find that there's a, there's, sometimes I get a lot of disagreement, sometimes there's agreement, but I think there's a sort of vague I think the sense is very vague now compared to what the idea was back in the Renaissance, for example, when it was very clear to them what it was. You know, you look at Madonna by Raphael, it's, it's pretty obvious what the idea is. Um, but we've had the 20th century. Okay. Yeah, Just second but, <laughs> but, uh, the Madonna is, and we still go in flocks to go and look at it. Mm -hmm. Da Vinci had, I think, the most popular exhibition in the National years ago. So I was just wondering if it was we thought it was important, because I, the way I see it, the art world is, I, I don't even really even think there is an elite, really. I think it's a sort of messy situation, no really, it's really fragmented, no one really knows what they're doing, and it's just a bunch of lost people, really. And I think the, the people who really are in charge are the, the guys who run the art schools. They're, they're the guys in charge, but they're not really educating anyone, they're sort of just telling each person to do what they want. So it's a fragmented situation, if we're here fragmented as well, then what is that? I mean, we're all sort of in, in our own little silos a little bit, and I kind of wonder if it's important to come to an agreement. And yeah, that's what I was Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's actually a good question to end on, I think. What is truth and beauty? Let's be quick. Yeah. Um, okay, so should we... Um, Start with Alex, yeah. then you, and then Mo. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for coming in. It's been a fantastic discussion. Um, uh, so um, Benjamin asked about um, what do we do about um, publishers um, refusing to publish authors because they're not because of demographic characteristics rather than uh, the quality of the work. I would say. Yes, we have to look towards self-publishing. I agree it's not ideal. The, the problem is, of course, you need, you need aggregators. You need trusted voices, people who are intelligent and discriminating and informed who will 
introduce that work to outsiders, to interested parties. Obviously, it's going to, it's, you could call that gatekeeping, but then I think all connoisseurship is, to a degree, gatekeeping when, it, when you're doing it public-facing. Um, I think that's inevitable. So I would say, yes, so pu- self-publishing and also publishing for ourselves. So, for example, you know, Bornbrook, Mallard, uh, if, if sort of the dissident, right, conservative groups, they, they should get more involved in holding art exhibitions and in publishing. Um, so they will become centres of excellence uh, separate from the state, because obviously the state is not going to be funding any of that. So final point, um, uh, truth and beauty. Um, I think uh, the ancients described truth, beauty and goodness as linked as a triad. And, they would, and a very common description of beauty in the Renaissance was something that um, seemed right, it, it, it chimed with you on the inside. So, for example, symmetry pleased you. It had a sense of correctness. It had a sense of balance. That there was something innate in that. It was not taught. It was something that you were born with. Now, whether or not that's the case is a different matter, but that's how the, uh, the Renaissance thought of it. So there was this sense of rightness, and there was also the sense of pleasure-giving. Beauty is something that gives you pleasure. Um, so a work of great beauty, it gives you pleasure in that it's attractive to look at, but also in the fact that you are recognising here that it is a work of nature or man which pleases you, which generates pleasure inside you, as well as a feeling of correctness. So that's one definition. Um, truth, I can't help you with, but I was reading a bit on aesthetics, so that's my um, contribution to the definition of beauty. Great, thanks. OK, Jack. <laughs> um, yeah, I think with regard to your um, uh, conundrum, you know, uh, I think back to um, Bob Dylan. Do, do you know the movie uh, Inside Lewin Davis? Has anybody watched that movie? You know? So that's an interesting film about someone who's very talented. <laughs> you know, Lewin Davis is a uh, you know, supremely talented singer-songwriter, but doesn't make it and towards the end of the movie there's this great scene where Bob Dylan is sort of like going into the gaslight club in, in Soho where um, where he's this Lewin Davis has been playing do you know what I mean and you know that Bob Dylan has become the, the next huge thing you know and I remember reading stuff about Dylan and people who knew him in those really early days you know it was like so you know there were loads of guys you know doing doing what he was doing acoustic guitar writing songs harmonica protest songs or whatever it was, you know. And it was always the guys who were the gatekeepers, if you like, you know. Their question was, well, what have you got to say? Because all of them are pretty good, but what have you got to say? And Dylan had something to say. And as such, he rose up, you know. So I think when artists have got something to say, then it gets noticed. It does, it does come through. So that's the important thing, you know. Just doing your art is one thing, but having something to say is something else, you know. And truth and beauty... Um, I, th- I think it's a, you know, it's a Keatsian, uh, John Keats, isn't it, who said beauty is truth and truth is beauty. It's uh, an equation that he, he made and, and, and I get it, you know. But when I shouted out, uh, we've had the 20th century, you know, I think that idea, you know, these older ideas, when you've had the 20th century and the horrors of the 20th century, when you have that image of the guy, you know, the German officer who listens to Schubert, you know, in the evening, the most beautiful music ever written, and then is in charge of gassing people with the following day and so on. You know, that's a terrible kind of impossible equation to sort of make sense of. You know, 
And when you talk about beauty in, in art in the 20th century, you think of a painter like Francis Bacon, for example, you know, that, that's undoubtedly powerful work. Um, would you describe it as beautiful? I, I don't know, but I think he probably would, and certainly it's truthful, you know. So these descriptions that we're dealing with, uh, I, th I think uh, it, it is difficult now when, you, when you've had this um, sort of powerful time preceding what we're now experiencing in the arts. Um, and when we're experiencing a whole new revolution in human consciousness, really, with the, with the internet and, and globalism and so on. It's shape, reshaping consciousness. And I think that's prime. perhaps why some of the older people in, <laughs> in the room, that's me, uh, find it uh, sort, of, sort of, well, not confusing. I, I actually find it exciting, but, uh, but I can see how it can feel confusing. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> no. um, so I, I just think it's quite interesting because I've heard a lot of people talking about um, who were reacting against the kind of managerial elite who were on the right. And I'm old enough to remember when it was people, young people on the left that were fighting the establishment in the 1980s. And now it's people on the right um, uh, fighting the establishment as well. I suppose the point is there's always been a bit of an establishment and you've always had to fight for your place in mm. society. And actually, um, I, I would encourage any young artist to kind of keep fighting for their place in society the one thing i think institutions do um uh, give us and um you know from the art schools to the conservatoires and all the rest of it is an ability to invest in skills and virtuoso and talent and uh, and i wouldn't want us to lose that i think we don't want to uh, pull, um throw the baby out of the bathwater we need to continue to uh, to, to to um hone our craft if you like but then it's up to us to kind of go out into the world and uh, and make our mark on, on it and ha and have something to say so um yeah i, I suppose and um, we do just live in this very very confusing age this age where the left is really not the left as it was you know and um, it's really sort of aligned itself with this kind of postmodernist way of thinking where things like social justice and equality don't even mean what they what they meant you know 30 years ago when i was, was getting involved in these sort of issues so yeah confusing times but if you want to be an artist be an artist there will always be barriers and it's a cue to kind of help knock them down i guess okay thank you can we give our speakers a A very interesting and enjoyable discussion. I always find when I'm organising things like these events, I think, oh my God, what have I done now? <laughs> and then it always turns out, you know, to have a, I just think you, you get people together to talk about ideas and um, very good stuff happens. So that, to my mind, is one of the ways of pushing back against the establishments, you know, um, that we don't like today. Anyway, <laughs> I want to make a couple of announcements before we finish. One is books at the back. Um, Mo Lavid has got a little book, Letters on Liberty, which is on debating issue, why debate is important. Um, and Alexander Adams has got a few of his books at the back you might want to buy and get him to sign while you can. Uh, the, I organise a series of art tours in London galleries and... Um, they're, they're set, starting off in um, about 10 days, February 5th. They're on Sunday mornings. You can find out information about them on the Arts, um, the Academy of Ideas website. And um, that is something that you might want to do because that's about appreciating art as art um, and what that, what that actually does mean uh, when, you, when you sort of come down to it. Uh, well, I'll be organising another... Uh, 
few of these arts and society forums up to the summer. Um, the next one is going to be an artist, Miriam Elia, who is a satirical artist who has written a very, published a very, herself published a very successful series of books that satirise um, today's the tropes of the modern day. Um, and she's, they're, they're hilarious. Um, she's very funny herself, and I'm really looking forward to interviewing her. Um, and then the Academy of Ideas, um, as I said in the past, sort of keep in mind the Battle of Ideas in October, um, and also uh, the Academy um, in July. There's a, a sort of like a, a school, a weekend school in July that is organised by the Battle of Ideas, which is a charity wing of the Academy of Ideas. Um, now we're going to repair to um, the pub, which is the Spread Eagle, which is on Parkway. Um, and you kind of wiggle around over there, back down Gloucester Crescent, and you'll get to it. Um, it's kind of in that direction on Parkway. Uh, could you... We're very um, short-staffed here, as everybody is. So if you could sort of stack the chairs as you leave, I'd be very, very grateful, because it would help a lot. And, um, and that's it, pretty much. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.